FBI Special Agent Hostage Negotiator, Christopher Voss. My role as a hostage negotiator was to connect authentically with the victim, the victim's family, and with the hostage taker. Everybody really deserves to have somebody hear what they have to say. Chris is known as a master negotiator, a title earned throughout his time serving as a lead crisis negotiator for the New York City Division of the FBI, and then as a lead international kidnapping negotiator for the FBI, where he helped develop the skills still used today across FBI hostages and negotiators. He proceeded to teach business negotiations at USC, Georgetown, and Harvard Business Schools. Again, he's also the number one masterclass. In 2008, Chris founded Black Swan Group, which specializes in teaching you how to never leave money on the table by using hostage negotiation techniques. In May 2016, he published the national bestseller, Never Split the Difference. Negotiate as if your life depended on it. To teach people everywhere how to apply these life-changing hostage negotiation techniques in their daily lives. He's proficient in negotiating with real-life terrorists, giving him plenty of context to help the corporate world where companies seem to get taken hostage legally all the time. Chris is in my metal mastermind group. Um, I've told you about the different mastermind groups he's, that, that I'm in. And... The cool thing about what Chris does is, yeah, he helps the FBI negotiate in hostage situations where people's lives really are on the line. But what he found is through his negotiating techniques, a lot of that applies to business and life. And at the end of the day, you guys, you negotiate all the time, right? I mean, whether it's with your parents, your friends, in business, in school, everything you do is actually a negotiation. And the skills that he used to save people's lives are the same skill that he uses to save businesses, to write contracts. I know that several of the guys in my metal mastermind group who have run into, you know, kind of difficult business dilemmas have called on Chris to come in and help negotiate and, and solve it. And um, it's just such a pleasure for me to be able to introduce you, my friend. So give it up for Chris Boss. <laughs> Stay on your feet. We're going to show Chris something. I am. I am, I am a, ten. a 10. I walk like a 10. I talk like a 10. And I always do what I ought to do. When I ought to do it. Because I, I am a 10. Sit down. Thanks, brother. Thanks, man. He came in all the way from Vegas for you guys today. And this man has a very, very busy schedule. All right, Chris, how did it start? I mean, 
you didn't just wake up one day and have the FBI say, Chris, help us out. How did no, you start? No, no, not at all. I mean, I, I've always kind of uh, been a type of person that sort of pursued whatever I thought was going to be cool, was going to be fun, what, what would be adventurous. And originally, I was, um, I wanted to be on FBI SWAT. I was a police officer before I was an FBI agent. And I was um, on, the, on the verge of going to the SWAT team and uh, police department, Kansas City, Missouri Police Department. And the FBI actually hired me two weeks before I was scheduled to go to the SWAT team. So then I go to the FBI and uh, get on the SWAT team in Pittsburgh. But I re-injured uh, re my knee. I had, and when I was in college, I always wanted to be in law enforcement. I'm kind of a medium-sized guy. And you know, there are a lot of people on the street that are much bigger and much better than I am. So I'm like, all right, I got to study martial arts so I could hold my own. And uh, you know, fancied myself <clears throat> maybe you know, a, a Caucasian version of Bruce Lee. You know, I don't know. And, but then I ripped up my knee in martial arts. Like the worst things that have happened to me always led to phenomenal things. Like I'm a, I'm a, a, a very big believer in, um, you know, if, if the world sort of beats you up bad, it's probably pointing you in a different direction. I wouldn't be a hostage negotiator if I hadn't ripped my knee apart in college. So I'm on a SWAT team and I'm trying, and then I go to trial for the Bureau's version of the Navy SEALs, which is a hostage rescue team. A bunch of SEALs and uh, Delta guys in the, on that team. And I try out and I re-injure my knee. I go in for another operation. At that point in time, it was probably a third surgery to put the knee back together. And then uh, I thought, well, nah, can't do this that many times. There's only so many times you can put Humpty Dumpty back together. And so I thought, well, let me do hostage negotiation. It can't be that hard. You know, I talk to people. How hard could it be? I talk to people every day. I could talk to a terrorist. I remember really thinking that. You know, I could talk to a terrorist. And I, uh, I was initially rejected for the training. And I asked what I could do. Um, you know, never take direction from somebody who hasn't been where, you, where you're going. So I went to the person in charge of the hostage team, negotiation team in New York, and who rejected me. And she said, go do this. Go volunteer on a suicide hotline. And I did. She was shocked. Most people don't take advice from the right people. For whatever reason, I've sort of learned to do that. And they put me on a, a, I got hostage negotiation training, and it was awesome. It was the coolest thing I'd ever done. And I got the chance then to negotiate some real sieges, and there ain't nothing like changing outcomes with words. And that's how it happened. Have any of you ever actually directly been involved with some kind of a hostage situation? I'm going to tell you something. It is scary. It is scary. Um, one of my best friends, um, CJ, are you here right now? No. Um, his grandmother was a patient of mine, very very well-off uh, Mexican businesswoman. And uh, one day, she drives out of her house in her limousine with her driver. She goes down the street. She gets toward the end of the street, and it's just like a movie. Two trucks come like this, block her car. Another truck comes behind her, so now she's blocked in. The terrorists take her and the driver out of the car and then called her family and asked for $3 million in 24 hours. How many people have $3 million in cash sitting around? Like 
I don't know anybody. Well, the 24th hour, they shot her. Bam. Done. He gets called in. And I remember the first time I saw you was on TV. And it's like I had already read his Sesame book. Sesame Street, right? It was on yeah, Sesame Street. Sesame Street, yeah. I had already read his book. Um, it's a number one, New York Times number one bestseller, so I already knew who he was. Then I see him on TV, I, you know, I recognize him. It turns out that he was also a, a metal man. And um, when we put together our mastermind group, we had the honor of having Chris join us. And, you know, since then I've seen him several times on TV talking about things. I'm going to hit you with the biggest one. What was the hairiest, scariest Hostage, hostage negotiation you ever had to do? Well, you know, there were a few of them. Uh, the, one, the one I talk about the most um, but that went bad um, uh, was w- working a case in the Philippines. Um, we just had a very big success. Bad guys are Abu Sayyaf, um, Al-Qaeda-related uh, group in the south of the Philippines. Really bad guys. And we had a negotiation where we, we got in a hostage out where the hostage walked away. We just wore them out. And so then they regrouped and they tried to do another kidnapping. They hit a dive resort, uh, wanted to scoop up a lot of people and get a lot of money for it. And that ended up being just one messed up lack of organization between the governments being involved, 13-month train wreck, uh, alter, uh, bad guys killed a number of people along the way. And um, Let's talk about your best one. What was the hairiest best outcome you ever were able to negotiate? All right, well, well what we learned from that and is, again, bad stuff uh, is only bad if you, if you don't learn from it. You know, there's, uh, you guys, everybody's heard of post-traumatic stress disorder. There's also post-traumatic stress growth. You know, what can you learn from something really bad? And we changed our negotiation strategy based on what we learned in that case. We get, a, we get, another, we get another case shortly thereafter a uh, really bad guy in the Philippines. I find out after the fact he was a serial killer. And we, we catch him. We do a rescue. Because we, we adjusted the training in the middle of uh, the approach in the middle of that negotiation. And there were times when I, I, I very much was concerned that we were going to wake up the next day and our hostage was going to be dead. But we had, every, every human being has emotional reactions. They, they might not have all the emotional reactions, but they have some. And we got this really bad guy uh, to just essentially effectively promise not to hurt the hostage. And we continued to gather information, and the Philippine National Police hit the house and rescued the hostage. And there were several times along the way that I was very concerned that, that we would Give, give we us kind of a, a brief, like, play-by-play about how it played out and what you did and, and how that affected the outcome. Well, we, uh, a guy gets... Uh, uh, kidnapped out of, out of the back of a cab in, uh, in the Philippines. And a bad guy meets, immediately reaches out for... So was this just a random guy, or, or was this a target? Like, was this a, you know, really wealthy businessman? or, or This, this guy looked for... Uh, he particularly... He liked to prey on Chinese, um, uh, ethnically, in, in many, in many uh, metropolitan areas... Um, the, the Chinese rely so much on one another, they have a tendency to not go to authorities. They want to handle problems themselves. So in the, in the Philippines in particular, uh, they have a lot of corrupt, corruption problems. 
it's not completely corrupt, but they have corruption problems in law enforcement, so the Chinese community didn't, didn't really trust them, didn't really want to go to them. So the bad guy was looking for a profile. He, he was looking for somebody who was Chinese. He was looking for somebody who looked like they had money. If they got in the back of his cab and they, they were, kidnappers will pick you out based on your clothing. They know what expensive clothing looks like. They know what casual expensive clothing looks like. Like if you got a pair of like really expensive shoes on, um, you start to match up in a profile. And so this, uh, he liked to grab wealthy people who were stupid enough to fall asleep in the back of his cab. He kept a, um, a canister of ether on, under the front. And if you, fell, if you looked wealthy and you fell asleep in the back of his cab, you woke up in his basement in chains. So wait, this guy was a driver? Yeah, he was, a, he, was, he was posing as a cab driver. Wow. So he's posing as a cab driver in the Philippines looking for potentially wealthy Chinese people. Yeah. And if you got in the back, and, you know, with the time difference and travel and that, it's, you know, I would fall asleep, like, for sure. You know? And so you wake up, and now you're in this guy's basement. Yeah. Nice. Pretty much. It's a, it's a good business model. <laughs> you know, one of, the, one of the keys to negotiation is it doesn't, doesn't matter what it is to you. Like, another thing that you've got up on the wall is treat people how they want to be treated. You have to really understand how somebody else sees things. And it doesn't really matter how you see it until you understand how they see it. And then also let them know that you understand how they see it. And kidnapping um, sounds really harsh. It sounds heartless and it sounds cruel. Kidnapping is a business internationally, globally. It's a business. And as soon as you start looking at it as a business, then you, can, you gain the upper hand as soon as you see it, how the other person sees it. This guy saw it as a business. All right. So he would, he would kidnap this businessman. Then, then what happens? Well, then, and then he goes through the phone you know, and starts looking for who, who, who is the most frequently contacted person in the phone. And if they can't figure out what, who the most frequently contacted person in the phone is, like if I were to grab one of you guys, I'd take your phone and I'd type in three letters. You guys know what those letters are? Mom. Mom. M-O-M. Oh, wow. I guessed it. Yeah. <laughs> right? That's, that's the first person I'm going to call if I, if I can't figure out, you know, based on your call history, who you're talking to all the time. And he, the, this bad guy happened to reach out for the girlfriend who was in New York. I'm, pre, I just, I'm just out of New York at the time. And I, you know, the hostage team was a team that I put together. So I'm like, awesome, we're, I'm going to put a team up around the person being called in New York, and we're going to rock, we're going to work this from this side of the world instead of that side, which is 13 hours difference, because I want to get a good night's sleep. <laughs> um, and we start talking to, um, they start talking to the, the girlfriend, and because of the previous case, I just changed our proof of life strategy. Proof of life is, a, is, the, is the deal legitimate here. So this guy right away um, I can't wait to try out my new strategy. He starts sending pictures of the victim right away, proves he's alive. I'm like, you know, I got a brand new toy. I'm trying to tie, try here, and this guy's messing up my timing. The, the kidnapping gets pulled over to the kidnap uh, Philippines because his family's there, mom is there, the brother's there, the family's all gathered in Manila. And mom does not want the girlfriend talking to the bad guys. Mom is like, it's my son. 
somebody from my blood is going to be talking to the bad guys. Just so, so uh, th this guy is, is uh, the kidnapper's Filipino. Uh -huh. Well, he's, uh, uh, he's Filipino, yeah. But speaks Mandarin. No, he's just looking for Chinese people. So he couldn't even talk to the guy he kidnapped then. Our, our victim was uh, Chinese ethnicity, Canadian-born, American citizen. Okay, so they were, this was all happening in English then? Yes. Okay. Yeah, so uh, we start, start the conversations. Wait, and one more thing. You say that this guy would pose as, as a taxi cab driver. Like, yeah. how many other people had he held hostage? We know for certain that he'd taken, kidnapped at least three people. And prior to this. Prior to this, and, and, and did not everybody was released. And you know this while you're negotiating? No, I got no idea. this all came out afterwards? Afterwards. Okay, yeah. all right. So we got this poor Chinese, Canadian, American businessman in the basement. Yeah. You've got the girlfriend and the mom in New York. And now you guys are, and where are you? Are you in New I'm York? In, I'm in uh, Quantico, Virginia, which is just south of D.C. Okay, so basically there's three places, and then you guys are all talking together. Yeah, Got yeah, it. and then, and then it, it moves, communication moves to the Philippines. I've discovered this guy's brother is coachable. You know, he, the he, kidnapper's brother. Um, the hostage's brother. The hostage's brother. So I start coaching a brother, and the brother uh, actually lives in the Los Angeles area. Um, Just and, out of curiosity, how much were they asking? They started out with asking for $7 million. $7 million. Yeah. But I'll get you a deal. It's like buying a car. <laughs> I don't see it how it is from the other side. And, but, but the guy was really brilliant. He, he, what he wanted was, he said, look, you've got to pay me $200 a day to keep your son alive. And in the meantime, I'm going to decide what the ransom is going to be. And so mom, of course, is saying, like, I, yeah, we'll pay. And I said, no, you can't pay that, even though you can easily afford it because they had the money. And, it, and look, if you can, if, even if you don't have the money, you're going to scare it up. And I said, he's going to bleed you guys dry until you run out of cash. All right. I, I, I'm just going to tell you something. As a dad, if you're telling me pay $200 a day or I'm going to kill your kid. You'd pay. <laughs> I'd pay. Like, like. I would, I wouldn't, that wouldn't even, like, I would just say, no, Chris, I'm paying, right? Right. But you're saying that's the wrong thing to do. Well, mom wanted to pay, but the brother becomes the, the decision maker for the family. He's the one with the levelest head. And I said, look, here's the deal. Here's what they're going to do to you. In order to get your brother out of this as soon as possible, it's very counterintuitive, but you can't pay the 200, and we're going to negotiate over whether or not you're going to pay the 200. And here's the thing. He's doing this based on history, on past experience, right? So this is a really tricky thing, and this isn't just in hostage ne negotiation. This is in life. This is in business, and whatever you do. If you're going to do something and you hire a specialist to help you do that, do you listen to him or not? You know, I know as a dad... I would be so emotionally distraught, my gut would say, pay whatever you would like. If it's $7 million, I'll find $7 million. Like, I, you know, I want my daughter back, right? Here's the bad thing is, you can pay the $7 million and not get your kid back. Exactly. 
So, you know, it, it's kind of like, you know, Chris said early on, you know, you take advice from the wrong people, you know. If I, if God forbid, I were in a situation where one of my kids got kidnapped, I know the guy, and I'm going to listen to him because I know he knows what he's doing. Continue, please. Yeah, so we, we continue the negotiations. Now, the bad guy on the other side is a pretty shrewd dude. Um, he's wired his cell phone to an antenna on top of a house about a mile away. So we begin to develop intelligence, as, and they think they know where uh, the bad guy is, where the hostage is being held. Philippine National Police and other government agencies come back and they say, we, we triangulated the location that he's calling from. You know, we want to do a raid. We want to hit the place. And this is really early on. And I remember at the time thinking like, eh, this, I don't know. You know, this is really early, but it's not my decision. It's a combination of any, any decision is always the family's decision. So Philippine National Police have got the family scared and they, we can hit it, we can rescue it. And they, they're going to they're gonna do a rescue. And I remember going to sleep that night thinking, there's a real good chance I wake up in the morning and there's hostage going to be dead. So I go to sleep. It's an overnight thing. They raid a location and find nothing. I mean nothing. And we expect the bad guy to call us the next day furious, out of control. Like, how are we going to deal with a, a, a guy who's just lost his mind angry because we tried to catch him. And the bad guy calls the next day, and he's just like, all right, so where's my money? Oh, he didn't even know. He didn't even know. Because it was a mile away. Yeah, and, and our people on the phone are going like, this guy doesn't even know we tried to do it. We are so inept. They missed by so far, he's oblivious wow. to us that we came out and, and went after the rescue. So the kidnapping continues to continue, and we realize the brother that I'm coaching is just really coachable. And so he's taking our ideas and adapting them in the moment. We spent a lot of time coaching him, a lot of time talking. He's a very smart dude. And I remember asking him after the fact, like, how, how are you so coachable? How are you so calm? And inadvertently, he kind of had the samurai mindset. And the samurai, um, and I've studied all warriors globally, and the reason why the samurai, from my understanding, didn't fear death was because they thought about it. They thought about the worst possible outcome, and they just recognized that it could happen. And just by thinking about it and accepting it as a possibility in advance, that was the way they lost their fear of death. And this brother, he told me afterwards, he says, I realized it was possible that they would kill my brother and that that was just a possibility and no matter what I might do, it might happen. And somehow he found his center by doing that and under all the stress, really listened to us. And he accepted the fact that his brother could get killed and it would be out of his control. And so that cleared his head and he started coming up with brilliance in the middle of the negotiation, which is what a great coach should do for you. You should come up with something brilliant on your own. What was the major pivot that you had learned in the case prior to this that you implemented on this case that you think really made a difference? Asking good questions. 
really? What's, what's a fair question? Like a fair question in a kidnapping is really, how do I know that you've got my brother? How do I know? It's a fair question. And then the second fair question is, if we pay, how do I know you're going to let him go? And you ask the other side a question that they got to stop and think and say to themselves, actually, that's a good question. <laughs> Even bad guys. Even terrorists. Right. Ask them a question very deferentially. You know, it's not accusatory. It's just like, how, how, do, I, how do I know? How do I know? Well, I, I, I could get the, you know, how do I know you got my brother? I mean, you, you, you get a newspaper, have them hold a picture of the newspaper, and you take a picture. So right. say, okay. But how do I know you're going to let him go if I pay you? How, how do you even answer that? Like, how do you really know? You don't, right? Uh, and that, that's uh, like I, the bad guy. Right. What, the idea is to make him think and slow him down and ask a great legitimate question in a very deferential way. Secret to gaining the upper hand that a negotiation is giving the other side the illusion of control. If I ask you a how question, you're going to feel in charge. You guys, did you hear what he just said? Say that again, Chris. The secret to gaining the upper hand in a negotiation is giving the other side the illusion of control. You want to negotiate well with your parents, make them feel like they're in charge. I always say, as a parent, never ask your kid a question that you can't accept the answer to. For instance, if I said, hey, do you guys want to go to grandma's house? They're going to say no. So I don't ask that. I say, do you want to go to grandma's house at 3 o'clock or at 5 o'clock? Get it? Good. Because I'll take both those answers. But do you want to go to grandma? That gives them the ability to say no. And then what? Well, OK, well, you're going anyhow, right? So when you're negotiating, even with your friends and your parents, uh, try doing it the other way. You know, do you want to go at 3 o'clock or 5 o'clock? Because both of those answers work for me. And it lets that person feel, just like Chris said, like they're in control. Yeah, they get a choice. Yeah. When somebody's given a choice of a couple of options, they feel included. You know, they have a tendency to want to collaborate. There's something in all human beings is that we're hardwired all human beings, A-L-L, were hardwired to collaborate. Whether you realize that or not, a co-author of my book, Tal Ross, said, the cavemen that survived were the ones that got together. The ones that wouldn't collaborate, you know, they died alone in the dark. They got ate by the saber-toothed tiger because they were out hunting by themselves or whatever stupid thing that would get you killed if you're by yourself. The survivors were the people that collaborated, and we still have that hardwired into us. And so your goal is really to just to kind of wear this guy down, right? Yeah, effectively. The bad guy. Yep. Yeah. So tell us how you did it. This is exciting, isn't it? <laughs> well, so then we're going back and forth um, on, on the 200 daily ransom demand. And, and we didn't pay, and we held up. And, and then actually, we did an experimental payment to see if we could trace some money. Money is great evidence. And the guy picked up the deposit and from an ATM in Manila, and we, we, didn't, we couldn't get him. So on his own, the brother said, when we run out of money paying you the daily ransom, 
what's going to happen. And there's this really long pause on the other end of the line. And the bad guy says, it'll be all right. Now, my team in country at the time said, look, this just went down on the phone. It sounds good, but we don't know what it means. And I remember I literally got up from my desk and started dancing around. Because that guy, when he said, it'll be all right, just promised to never hurt the hostage. And I thought to myself, we got this guy now. He doesn't know we got him, and we got him. He just promised not to kill our hostage, just a matter of wearing him out. And I, um, we deploy negotiators internationally on 21-day rotations because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work you 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And you can only hold up under that kind of pressure for about 21 days. So I got to rotate teams every 21 days. And I got my team coming out, and they had actually called me just before um, this thing goes down. And they said, look, we think we got this guy in the ropes. We're fairly certain we got a ransom demand that's very palatable. The family wants to pay. If we let them to pay, we're pretty sure that they're going to let, let the guy out. And then we can follow up because we got a lot of evidence. We can follow this up. We'll get this guy. And I remember saying to her on the phone, no, 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 no. We can, we can still get a better price. <laughs> can we save the family some more money in case it takes a while for this to go down? So we're rotating negotiators out. And Philippine National Police come up. And they, they go, like, we really think we know where this dude is now. Developed a lot more intel. And at that point in time, we had enough that I thought a raid is probably a good idea. I'm like, all right, I won't stand in a way. So they go out and they hit a house, and it's the bad guy's house. He's not there, and his wife is. And she says, yeah, well, we own another house. He's over there a lot of times. I don't know what he does there, but we have this other house. So they pick up the, you know, the traveling circus, the SWAT team, and they go in and they crash the door at another house, and the bad guy's not there either. But the hostage is in the basement. And so they go in, they rescue the hostage, and then they close the place back up and wait inside for the bad guy to come home and say, surprise, and they scoop them up. So you, I mean, literally wrote the book, Never Split the Difference. I mean, was there any really, you know, great, like kind of training program that you had before doing this? I, I mean, I know you developed a lot of your own techniques and skills in, along the way, but was there like a starting point where it's like you took, you know, hostage negotiation 101, and then from there, advanced? Well, the first and most viable training that I ever went through was when I volunteered on a crisis hotline. That was when I was rejected. Uh, the person in charge of the team said, look, go volunteer on a suicide hotline. And there's, there's a subtle difference between a suicide hotline and a crisis hotline. Uh, you, you, might not, you might be in crisis, but you not, might not be suicidal. Like you could be grief-stricken. Uh, your brother, somebody important in your family, and could have died, and you, you would be so in crisis over that, so grief-stricken that you can't function, but you're not suicidal. So crisis hotline was where I went, and uh, the experience of helping people in really difficult times and learning how to help people was really valuable. And by the way, I know a lot of students your age that actually work on teen suicide hotlines. 
It's a very, very intense training. It's about a month-long training. You have to go several weekends in a row. But it, it is such a rewarding thing, uh, you know, and to be able to learn those skills and, and literally be able to, you know, to talk to kids your age who are in crisis um, with the proper training, it, it really makes a huge difference. And, um, and it will be the kind of thing that you'll use the rest of your life in everything you do. Agreed, yeah, it's, it's extremely rewarding. So, so, you know, you, you have this illustrious career as a hostage negotiator, and then you make this pivot and start actually speaking to huge business groups. And this isn't a, a, a hostage life or death thing. This is like business. This is about money, right? And the hostage world is about money, too. It's just the stakes are a little bit higher, right? So you decide to write this book. What was the impetus for that? Well, as soon as I left the FBI, I got a lot of advice. Uh, if I wanted to teach in business, that you, you, you got you got to write a book. And but I, I, me, us, myself, my son and I. My son was very involved in, in the development of the ideas after I left the bureau. We wanted to make sure that we had a full system, so to speak, and we wanted to test it out and make sure it worked. You know, I there was another hostage negotiator that wrote a book. And he just was, here the ideas, see if it works. He didn't really have any context for it. So I started teaching, we taught at Georgetown and USC and Harvard. And we had, we made, like if you came into my class, I made you try it in your real life in order to pass a class. It was a requirement. You had to take the skills out and try it in real life, not in simulated negotiations with each other, but in real life with real human beings. And people just started becoming very successful with what we taught them. And the book is filled with a bunch of examples of my students trying the skills on everything from a spouse, a family member. There's a great negotiation between a husband and wife over a Christmas tree to you know, literally billion-dollar Wall Street transactions. And we found out emotional intelligence is a key to get along with people. It doesn't matter what it is. One of the things I love in the master class, if, if you actually watch it, is there's a lot of role-playing where it, you, know, you get to really see firsthand you know, all of these things that, that Chris talks about being implemented. What? Christmas tree, how'd that one go? Well, what's cool about it, one, one of the things about the title of the book, Never Split the Difference, and also, if you want the other side to accept your position, that you might be right, to be fair, to use the F-bomb, you know, I, I used uh, fair as the F-word in my, in my world. To be fair, you've got to be willing to accept they might be right. So a husband and wife are talking about a Christmas tree, and a little bit of a stereotype here. The husband wants the Christmas tree for very practical reasons. He wants an artificial tree because you buy it once, and the needles are not everywhere, and you never got to buy it again. You pack it away. You know what it's going to look like. You know, if you've if you got pets, you know, your cat doesn't climb the artificial tree, probably the dog doesn't come by and make it part of its territory. There's all these practical reasons. And, and the wife is like, she's the one here. She doesn't want to talk about it at all. And the husband is the one that's in my class, by the way, too, using the skills to supposedly get his way. But never be so sure of what you want that you wouldn't take something better. You've got to hear the other side out. And finally, he says, he can't figure out you know, why she won't talk about it at all. He thinks she's being unreasonable. So he thinks, you know, maybe this is something deep within her. And he says, 
it seems like you had real trees growing up. And she says, yeah. And the smell of a real tree. And I can remember how close I felt with my family in our holidays. And the smell of the real tree always brings back these memories of the holiday spirit with my brothers and sisters. And I want our children to have that same reaction. And he went, we're getting a real tree. You know, he heard her out and completely changed his mind based on a deeper, more significant reason. I remember once I was having a conversation with my daughter, Charlie, and one of our like great, great aunts was having this birthday party. And uh, I'm like, Charlie, I want you to go to you know, Aunt Ida's birthday. It's like, Dad, I really, really don't want to go. And I'm 18 now, so I get to make my own decisions. I said, OK, I respect that. Just turned out that that day, the LA Times published that USC, where she was going, was the most expensive university in the world. And I said, you know, Charlie, I really don't feel like paying $90,000 in tuition this year. But you make your own mind up. Guess where she went? He took her hostage, didn't he? <laughs> As a parent, you learn to negotiate pretty well. Understand what they want. Yeah. Um, I would love to have you guys ask Chris some really good questions. All right? But they better be good. Uh, where's the microphone? Right here, in the back. Hi, Chris. My name is Andrea. I'm a coach here. How are you doing this morning? I'm good. I'm good. Good. Uh, ah, the, I see you now. So. Yeah, I know. I'm all the way back here. Right. But I have, I have a burning question because I live in a big city, and, and you know, you always have to, quote, unquote, keep your head on a swivel. But can you talk us through what that actually looks like practically and how we can practice being safe, especially if we're in big cities or if we're on college campuses, and what that looks like for just the young people in the room and for myself as well? Yeah, by the way, I will never fall asleep in a taxi cab in <laughs> the Philippines. <laughs> I'll take my kickballs. <laughs> yeah, you know, really, it's just, it's just a matter of looking aware. I mean, um, in point of fact, like when, when I first got into the FBI, I was in New York City in a, in a very dangerous time in the city. There wasn't a straight, safe street corner in the city. And understanding what it is to the other side, uh, predatory behavior. Somebody's going to mug you. Somebody's going to attack you. Somebody's going to do something bad to you. They want to catch you off guard, first thing. So if you're looking around, and not in an afraid, afraid matter, you know, like, don't look like a scared rabbit, but be completely aware of what's around you, they're going to look for the person who's unaware, number one. They're looking for somebody who's not paying attention. And then secondly, um, they have a specific location that they want to attack you in. And then if for some reason your radar is telling you that you're in danger, Move. Simply move. It isn't really that much more complicated than that. And don't be afraid to run. Like, and so, so what if you hurt their feelings? Like if your radar is picking up that somebody is locked in on you and they're going to do you harm, 
Don't say, ah, I can't run because, you know, it would embarrass him, it would embarrass me. I mean, move, just get out of there. And then, and then finally, how, how do you not look like a target? Don't look scared. And conversely, like you could also look too easy. Like I'm, I'm, I'm like almost in a joyful mood when I'm walking through the street in New York City just a couple years ago. In Manhattan, in, in an area of town that is not a bad place, and I, somebody, some predator on every block is confronting me. And I remember thinking at the time, what if, have I got an uh, idiot in, in public written across my forehead? Like, why am I drawing these people in? And then I thought, well, I, I got to have a smile on my face, but that also says, if you touch me, I'm going to be a problem. And I just changed my inner voice slightly to where I'm a, I'm a happy guy and I'm not an easy target. And they all left me alone. So I, was, I, I paid attention and I, I, didn't, I didn't try to look mean. You know, I didn't look like if you touch me, you know, I didn't want to look like a bad guy. But I, I was just, I, I was happy and I looked like, look, I'm just not gonna be easy to take. And they left me alone. And I found that in, in the most dangerous neighborhoods. I mean, I, I hung out alone in some pretty dangerous areas. And I just, you know, how do you not look like a target? First, pay attention to what's going on. Head on a swivel, as you said. Yeah, and I think that that's really important to know your environment. Is there anybody here from Brazil? No? So my daughter, Ana, w just went to Brazil. Brazil is famously known for people stealing your purses, your jewelry, things like that. You know, and she was really smart about it. First of all, she went with two other girls. They always stayed together as a group. You know, I told her, do not walk around Brazil alone, number one. Number two, don't wear any of the jewelry I bought you. Just leave it home. Because you're a target, you know. I mean, they will rip, you know, necklaces off of you. And then the other thing she did, which was smart, is she didn't carry a purse anywhere. She basically had one of those belts under her shirt. So even if you have the belt around your waist, they just come up with a scissor in some places, you know, and they'll just cut it off you. So she was not a walking target there. I mean, she just looked like anybody walking around the street and there was nothing, you know, there was nothing that, that was that accessible. You know, if you're carrying a purse, yeah, you know, people can take your purse. Not just in Brazil. I mean, a lot of different places in L.A. that happens, too. So just be smart about where you are. Know where you are. And here's another thing, too. Be aware. You know, just like, you know, we never listen. You know, you're on the airplane. They say, look for the you know, nearest emergency exit. Well, you know what? There may be a day you need to know where that is. So listen. Be aware. You know, um, I mean, th that shooting in, in, in Las Vegas a few years ago. I mean, here's a guy perched up, you know, in a hotel, shooting from a window in a concert. You know, at first, people thought it was fireworks. You know, I mean, it's not abnormal. You're at a concert. You know, then, you know, they realized what was actually happening. So just make sure that you are always aware of where you are and what's going on in your environment. Yeah, it's great advice, and it could be a game for you. Like if you if, if just play if you make it a game, 
It's a, a lot easier to wrap your mind around it. Gamifying something is a great way to survive. Yeah. Is it on? Yep. Um, yeah. My name is Atlantis, and I was wondering um, what was the longest time it took for you to save a hostage, and what was the shortest amount of time? Um, Good questions. Uh, I worked the kidnapping in Haiti that uh, we worked that out about 36 hours. Um, I ended up kind of talking to the father on a Thursday. We had his son out Saturday morning. I told him it was probably going to go down that fast, and it did. I also worked the kidnapping in Colombia that actually lasted for over six years. And um, it was a great, it was a great rescue. Uh, there were some people that were rescued in that case that had been held longer than six years. So it was, it was the nature of the business in both places. Wow. I have a really cool YPO story. So YPO is an international organization. Um, there was a group of Colombian businessmen, and they are really, really tough in Colombia. And they kidnapped a member from the YPO group. It was, a, it was just like my forum with Chris. They took one of the forum guys. And um, they basically said, if you tell anybody or alert the, the police, we'll kill him immediately. And he called the wife and told her that. And they demanded a large amount of money. So what she did was she called his YPO group and said, you guys, you know, my husband's just been kidnapped. They want all this money. You know, I don't know what to do. Those guys hired a team of eight mercenaries who actually went into the jungle, found the husband, extracted him, and got him out of there. So, you know, in life sometimes you do what you got to do. And uh, there, it wasn't like a big negotiation thing. She just, she hired experts that, you know, had the wherewithal to find where these guys were get in there, get her husband, and save his, her husband, you know? So you just have to be aware of your situations and do smart things. Yes, right here. Go ahead and pass the mic. Uh-huh. Okay, cool, and then pass it to Hello? Chris. Oh. Yeah, uh, please tell Chris your name and where you're from. My name is Ian. Uh, I'm from here in L.A. And uh, I was wondering how do you keep, uh, keep your composure when you're, I don't know, dealing with, like, frustrating people? Um, I, that, that is a great question. Um, under, under any sort of negative circumstances, how do you see the future? Like if, I, if I'm dealing with somebody's frustrating, to keep my composure, I'll, I'll either tell myself this is the, the inevitable outcome here is good, or depending upon the circumstances, if it's a personal negotiation, any personal negotiation I'm in these days, it's because my life is going well, no matter how negative it could be. And I'll just take a perspective on it, and I'll say to myself, the, the mere fact that I'm in the midst of this um, is because my life is going well. So whatever the challenge is, this is actually a sign of a, of a fairly successful life. And I, I know of uh, one kidnapping in, in uh, Iraq a number of years ago, also a great rescue, a guy named Roy Hallams. Um, he, in the, he survived emotionally. How did he keep his composure? He actually prayed. Uh, prayed to God in the midst of a mo in the moment, and got a very clear sign. All he, all he said in his prayer, you know, whatever your religion is, whatever you believe in, his spirituality was. He said to God, 
look, um, I'll hang in here as long as you need me to, as long as I know I'm gonna, as long as I know I'm gonna live. I need a very clear sign from you that I'm gonna live. And I had heard this story before I met Roy, and then after the rescue, I asked him about it. He, he's in Baghdad, he's in Iraq, which is the desert. He's under a house. You know, the bad guys are keeping him um, in these hollowed out rooms under houses when they're moving him. And he's, he's um, blindfolded and he's, he's, his hands are tied behind his back. So he says, all right, so I need a sign and I need it to be clear. So I need you to make it rain. And if you make it rain, then I'm like, all right, I'll hang in for however long you need, but I know I'm gonna live. And he said 10 minutes later, he heard rain on the roof of the house. So what's the point? The point is if you can fix a moment in time in the future that for whatever reason you see a positive outcome or you see a better outcome, the nature of human beings being what they are, you'd be shocked at what you can survive if the point in the future is a place that you're working yourself towards. Cool. What would you say is the biggest takeaway that they should get for negotiating in business? Uh, the biggest takeaway is really, it's about collaboration, and it's about hearing the other side out. It's about treating people the way they want to be treated. It's about remembering, and there's a, uh, another in, in your book, it also says people remember how you made them feel. Every human being on earth loves to feel heard. And you'll be shocked at how open to being persuaded someone is after they feel heard. And these days, there's a bunch of neuroscience behind it, behind it that backs it up. I'm a, I learn as much as I can about neuroscience without actually being a scientist. I listen to Andrew Huberman's podcast all the time. I love to learn. I'm a fan of Stephen Kotler. You know, the impact of feeling heard and understood is transformative. And no matter how adversarial the negotiation is, once somebody feels heard, you literally will be astonished at how agreeable they become, no matter how adversarial the situation is. We go through that in coach training. So for those of you who don't know, um, you guys all arrive on Sunday. Your coaches all arrive Thursday night. We do kind of a little welcome reception at my place. And then we have all-day coach training on Friday and Saturday. And a big part of the coach training is teaching the skills to interact with you guys as students and make you feel heard, right? And, and there are things you can do verbally and non-verbally. I mean, just, you know, listening to Chris, nodding, looking in his eyes, paying attention, you know, those are all non-verbal things, you know. And then there are verbal markers, you know, uh-huh, okay, I understand, things like that. But really engaging. And, um, I mean, there are people that master this, like, like uh, Garth Brooks, one of the biggest country stars in the world, right? When you're talking to Garth, you literally feel like you and he are the only people on the earth. Like, I, I remember talking to him, and one of his security guards came up to him, and he just turned and said, 
don't you see I'm talking to the doctor? And like push the guy away, right? You have to be that engaged. You have to make the other person that you're talking to feel like they're the only person in the world that matters right at that second. And that is powerful. Get it? Good. Yeah, it's being interested. That's the other, other thing you've got yeah, to say. Yeah, be I'm interested, sure. not interesting. Right here. Yes, please stand. Hi, um, my name's Keegan. I live in Pasadena, um, uh, California. My question was, um, and I know you talked about kind of like the samurai mindset. Um, how did you learn to be so calm in such crisis situations? When you knew, when you went to sleep knowing that this hostage could be dead in the morning, how did you learn and... Like, what did people tell you to help you understand that you need to be calm in those situations? And, like, how did you learn to not freak out when you were doing your job? Yeah, it was a couple things. That's a great question. I mean, the process of learning how to calm other people down calms you down. And, you know, understanding empathy actually makes you smarter. Understanding what the other side is coming from. It kicks a part of your brain and that automatically calms you down. It helps you think more to actually really effectively listen to somebody else so that they feel heard actually calms you down. And then, so to start with, I didn't even know I was being taught that. It's, you know, it's, there's a really old movie, The Karate Kid, Wax On, Wax Off, when the guy's really learning techniques, but he thinks he's, you know, waxing something. So they, they teach us how to calm people down and it ends up calming us down. And then I had faith in the process, and I realized that best chance of success also meant we wouldn't be perfect. I, I couldn't, nothing is perfect. So I knew that we were doing the best we possibly could and had to accept that it might occasionally go bad. And then the last part of it was, and I've been asked this question a lot, a lot and I didn't really understand the distinction until recently. I was never proud of what I did. But I did feel it was a privilege. Now, what's the difference in those two emotions? If you're proud of what you did, you're happy with the moment, and you're looking back. If it's a privilege, what you're doing makes you feel better about yourself, and you're looking forward. And the difference in an emotion that looks forward versus one that looks back is actually very self-sustaining because it's about where is this taking me? What is this doing for me? What kind of an impact is it having on, had on my life? And my girlfriend uh, often asked me, you, you must be really proud of what you did with the FBI. And I always kind of go like, no. I always thought it was a privilege. And now I realize the distinction in that emotional mindset was actually good for me and help me sustain it without sort of melting down. I think another thing that's really important in life, and, and I love throwing out these life lessons to you guys, put things in perspective. And it's harder when you're younger. It gets so much easier as you get older. But I mean, I remember you know, waking up you know, to go to school when I was in high school yeah, you know, like this big zit on your forehead, and you're like, I'm not going to go to school. Like, it's the end of the world, right? I mean, it's the worst, worst, worst. At the end of the day, 
nobody even sees it but you, pretty much. I mean, so a lot of times in life, I think you just have to do a reality check and just stand back and say, like, okay, how important is it that, you know, my shoes don't match my pants? Or, you know, I mean, how important is it? Now, what he's doing is super important. You know, you're negotiating for somebody's life. But I think that through experience and being able to keep yourself, I mean, if, can you imagine if he was like hysterical? How could he talk to anybody? It just wouldn't work, right? So put things in perspective and try to stay calm and be, like he said, intelligent. You know, that's your real advantage. Go ahead. Hi, my name is Morgan. I'm from West Hills, California. And I had a question. Um, have family members of hostages have ever, like, cost the life of the people who were hostages? Like, for example, you mentioned the mother who wanted to pay the 200 daily, but you mentioned it wasn't in the best interest. Yeah, um, another great question. And it, uh, emotionally dealing with it and understanding the reality of the situation. No, the short answer is no. The bad guys are the ones that caused all of it. Now, you, can, you could have done things better or you could have done things worse, and that might not have changed the outcome at all. Um, family members, before they get coached by good people, will do things that we would ask them not to do, and that might not necessarily change the outcome at all. Whatever the outcome it is in any hostage situation or any kidnapping, it is always, always, always the fault of the bad guys. Always. Great. Okay, stand, please. Yeah. Hi, my name is Anaya. I'm from San Francisco, California. And, well, God forbid any of us ever get kidnapped, but, like, is there anything that you could recommend for us to do to tell, like, the kidnapper to help with the release or the negotiation, like, from the inside? That's yeah. a really great question. So, first of all, just based on the odds, globally, just based on the odds, not all the time, but based on the odds, you're going to survive. So, think about who you want to have play you in a movie, because there should be a movie about it. It's an right. adventure. It's an ordeal. We'll make a great TV show. But secondly, it, as soon as they know your name, it's harder to hurt you. So don't comply with whatever they want to do if they say, you know, get up here and get back in this room. Like if I was, if I'd be kidnapped, I would, I would look at him and say, I'm Chris. I'll, I'll go in the room. I'll do whatever you say. I'm Chris. That's, if you could find a way to get your name into their head it increases the chances that, that not that we will su survive, but that you'll be treated better. Yeah, so basically, you're not the hostage. You are a real person, you know? You're Chris, and you have a family, and I'm a dad, and I have kids, and I get it, you know? And like, because it's, it's a lot easier to look at a thing as opposed to, a real person with a real family. With a, I get it. That's brilliant. And, and all you got to do is get your name in their head. That, that's enough in and of itself. You could, the rest of it is helpful. Get your name in their head. All right. Two more questions. Um, I'm Jane Chang, and I'm from Los Angeles. Um, and I'm like, really interested in going to like, psych, uh, counseling psychology. And I was just wondering, 
in what way like does your or your strategy change if the the kidnapper seems really mentally unstable and if you have an example can you share us um Again, it's uh, unstable, unpredictable, any of that is in the eye of the beholder. I mean, even somebody who's unstable, figure out how they want to be talked to, figure out how they want to be treated. Like everybody, regardless of mental state, everybody, this, this thing that's referred to as active listening, empathy, the black swan method, proactive listening in point of fact, it's been shown to be effective with everybody on Earth, regardless of their mindset. Now, how effective is it going to be? Like I used to say that uh, unless somebody's wiring is wrong, and I, and I speak very much in layman ter layman's terms, and I would describe if you're what used to be called bipolar or manic depressive, that's a chemical problem, uh, uh, imbalance in your own chemistry, which can be addressed. Or if you're paranoid schizophrenic, theoretically, that's a wiring problem. I mean, you've got real fundamental issues in the way that your mind works. And yet, it's been shown that even people that are paranoid schizophrenic like to feel heard. So whoever you are on the other side, regardless of anything, feeding back, everybody likes to feel heard. Everybody likes to feel that you're actually interested in them. Now, how effective is it going to be is going to vary depend upon the state of mind, the personal stresses, all of the geography that they covered to get up into that moment. But in point of fact, making people feel heard makes every human being who's alive feel better. True. One sec, where's our photographer? Oh, you know what I want to do? We're going to do this last question. I want to do something really cool for Chris. Um, can you guys open up both shades? Um, I want to have all you guys come up here on stage facing that direction and take just one huge group picture so we can make Chris a really nice... Oh, that's cool. I would love that. ...memento of leap. All right? So if you and guys... Put it on your Instagram. Yeah. Sorry? We got to do... Well, okay, then we'll do two quick questions. Boom and then boom. Uh, hi. I'm Isabel Medrano from Bronzeville, Texas, and I wanted to know how did you realize that your life, that you wanted to go down this path, and how did you start your progress towards it? I, you know, I found myself there. I just was following sort of one interesting thing after another that appealed to me. And, 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 I, and I saw that in, in the Leap book about the seven-year head start. I mean, as you navigate life, I'm a big believer in pursuing stuff that just, to me, it seemed cool. It seemed like a great adventure. You know, there's a bit of a cliche, do what you love. But I always sort of followed stuff that I thought was going to be a great adventure. And I, f uh, number, I never thought I was going to be in the FBI. And when I was in the FBI, I didn't think I was going to be a hostage negotiator. And, but I just followed the stuff that I was really attracted to. And it was a bit of a journey. You know, I, when I first started college, I changed my major three times. But I followed stuff that appealed to me as a human being. And I think that's what everybody should do. Agreed. Because if you love what you do, it's not work, right? Last one. Good morning, Mr. Voss. My name is Stephanie Ellis. Um, my question is, um, how do you get someone to re-engage in a conversation that they've convinced like, that they don't want to participate in or like you're trying to negotiate for something and they're disengaging in the conversation? You were talking a lot about the illusion of control. Is, like. How do you get the person to think it's their idea to give you what you want when you're in the middle of like you know a business transaction or getting something to do in action? 
Well, and the, the first problem is people will always engage in a conversation where they feel heard and listened to. And so if they've disengaged, you're not hearing them. You're talking at them. And that's when people disengage. Talking with you does them no good, so they stop. Why does it do them no good? They're, you're not interested. You're not treating them the way they want to be treated. You're not hearing them out. That's the first part of that. Then the second part of that is whatever their goal is, make your goal a path on that journey. Like a kidnapper wants to get paid. They don't re the hostage, in point of fact, a kidnapping for ransom, the hostage is a commodity. So if the release of the hostage is the avenue to their goal, they got no problem releasing a hostage. How, do I, how am I going to know that you're going to let them go if I pay you? I've just made my goal the avenue to their goal. And that's what makes them, so you don't disregard their goal. Just make your goal the path to what they want to get. Awesome. All right, you guys, let's give it up for Chris Voss. I want you all to come up this way and face that direction. Some of you on the stage, some of you down below. Let's do like three rows, like kind of like this, kind of standing here and then standing up on stage. Come on quickly. Hi. If you're tall, My go pleasure. in the back nice you and you know who you are. I'm glad you enjoyed it. And get in real close. Thank you. That was awesome. Yeah, I mean, thank yeah. you for having me in. I mean, oh, thank you thank very you much. This. this is awesome. You know, 60% of these kids come from low-income families, and we raise money so they could come here. Most of those kids are the first time. All right, you guys, if you can't see the photographer, she can't see you. Get in close and make as many rows. Actually, make a, a short row right in front here, too. You're too tall. Like shorter, shorter people up right in front of Chris and I. Come on, everybody, get in. I, I need some naked history. Get in close. Wasn't that awesome? Keep coming. <laughs> All right, you guys, turn around. Get in, get in, get in. You got to get a little lower. You're blocking Dr. Bill. <laughs> All right, everybody, look forward. On three, say leap. One, two, three. Leap. All right, arms up. Arms up, yeah! Woo! Hi! This podcast is a part of the C Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.